Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We are up to part three out of four on Provence. <laughs> I think by the fourth, I'll be absolutely fluent. This one you've titled The Controversies. So we're looking forward yes. to this is uh, your speciality. Well, it'll actually last slightly into the fourth as well, but the main ones are this week. And the controversies in Provence were the greatest of the Middle Ages of the entire period of the Roshanim. Before I get to that, though, I was asked to provide some more Provençal minhogim and laws. So perhaps a couple related to the, the calendar, as we're almost the month of Adar. If Purim falls on a Sunday, so we fast on Thursday, whereas they fasted on Friday, which is highly unusual because fasts never occur on a Friday, with one exception, even Yom Kippur. With regards to Tishabav, the Rivad ruled that one does not wear tefillin at all during the day, and he adds it's better to place ashes on one's forehead, which is what he does personally. And then there is a series of responses called the Truvois Chachme Provincia, which has a number of unusual cases, and I will share one. The grandson of the Reduk, of Rabdovid Kimchi, was a rov in Narbonne at the end of the 13th century, and then in Carpentras. He writes that there was a husband who uh, basically wanted to get rid of his wife that he'd married, but now grown bored of. Um, but we don't allow a man to divorce his wife without her permission. So he came up with the following idea. He would make a nader, a vow, which prohibited her from having any benefit from him, and that included any physical relationship, which the Mishnah rules that if the husband refuses to annul the vow, she gets an automatic divorce on her ksuba, which is exactly what he wanted. So now he comes to the Bezdin and tells them what he's done, and he's waiting for them to give him his divorce. Except that Mordechai, his grandson, the author of the responsum, refused to sit on the Bezdin for the case because he felt the husband was manipulating halacha. So the husband goes to the local bishop, who cross-examines Mordechai and determines that Jewish law allows this man to have a get and forces him to convene a Bezdin and grant the divorce. And that was, you know, life as it was lived back then. That was sort of, you know, in real time. I would have thought she's well rid of him anyway, by the sounds of it. Well, women divorcees of the 13th century were economically disadvantaged. You know, going out to work was often difficult back then. Anyway, on to the controversies. So if one word were to define the scholars of Provence, it would be Rambam. Although he never lived there or even visited, but he was the cause of much correspondence, debate. 
And as we've mentioned, Provence was small geographically, but it punched way above its weight. There is no area of Torah without its influence. Gemara, Halacha, Grammar, Kabbalah, Philosophy, and uh, particularly Kabbalah and Philosophy were in their formative years in terms of creating a system to teach them and whom it would be taught to, which was uh, true across the Jewish world at the time. Nowadays, philosophy in particular means almost nothing to us. Even those that we call philosophers today in the Jewish world are generally passing on existing ideas, the positions of previous generations. They're not mechadshim in philosophy. They're not pioneers. And, you know, the proof is that whatever they write can be read by the layman who has no experience or background in philosophy. And anything that can be redacted to 500 words and put into a weekly email isn't pure philosophy. You know, that's the bite-sized version. Now, similarly, when it comes to Kabbalah, at the time it was taught by the very few in, in strict intimacy, as the Gemara advises. And unlike the learning of, say, Tanakh or Mishnah, there was no real text or commentary, besides for the Sefi Yitzir that we mentioned last week, and, and early versions of the Zohar. So it's a very real area of Torah, but very exclusive. I mean, one can argue that today we're just more well-read. Information is more accessible, so people so just know more. As we go through the definitions of philosophy, we will see otherwise. Right. Now, the Rambam will bring elements of philosophy to a broader public. Uh, for the moment, I'm not going to deal with his, his famous and monumental philosophical work, the Mirror Nevochim, The Guide to the Perplexed, because it was not accessible to most European Jews until after his death, because Maimonides wrote it in Arabic. Only the Mishnah Torah was in Hebrew, excluding, in fact, the Sefer Mitzvahs, and he completed it around 1180. It reaches Provence around 1190. So the first controversy had no connection at all to philosophy. It was a debate over halacha, I'm assuming. Well, let's look at the halachic code, the Mishnah Torah, and we'll see. Go back to something we said last week. Why did he write the encyclopedia? Because if you lived in the year, I don't know, 500 or even 1100, and you wanted to know the laws of Shabbos, you only had one option. You had to learn through the entirety of the Talmud. There's no reference book. There's no index and the riff in the 11th century is the first one to codify, but he does it within the Talmud, using the framework of the Talmud. Comes along the Rambam, and he changes it forever. All of Halacha in one book. And it's a very useful work, which is why it's indispensable to Halacha nowadays. You have in there, in the first section... You've got the laws of idolatry, the laws of teshuva, repentance, the resurrection of the dead. He includes the 13 principles of faith, not exactly worded as we have them today, but covering the exact same ideas, which include definitions about God, God being one, being eternal, which means that particularly in this section, it's full of philosophical ideas 
free will in the laws of repentance. Is resurrection the body or just the soul? Do demons and other things that go bump in the night exist? (laughs) What is defined as knowing God? Examination, the acceptance thereof. What does loving God mean? So no one doubts the Rambam's abilities as a leading scholar, but that doesn't lead them to accepting everything that he said. And he gets into trouble for it. And as we mentioned, he doesn't include any sources. So on that point, why isn't it obvious where the source is? To one who is knowledgeable, you could find where the Gemara discusses a topic. You could just scroll through one's own memory. Um, uh, well, n- not really. Let, let me answer this in perhaps two ways. Firstly, when the Rambam wrote, he had the Talmud Yerushalmi, the earlier Talmud that was written in Eretz in the 4th century, and we have lost at least one-sixth of the Talmud that he had. Since the 12th century, it's gone. So you can't trace some sources because maybe they came from there, and you don't know what was said at all. I mean, at the time, they would have known, but you know, you're looking back um, a century or two later, you can't backtrack. That's one thing. Secondly, in the middle of discussing monetary law, so in the Mishnah Torah, the Rambam sort of goes off almost at a tangent, but to prove a point, he writes that he used a comparison of texts to determine which is the correct one. And he writes that the Go'inim made a mistake because they had a faulty text of the Talmud, and he found two scrolls which were 500 years old that validated the Girsa that he had suspected was correct. And we don't have that 500-year-old version, so, so now what? So you can't really backtrack. But, and this is the interesting, almost ironic element, his ideas on faith, these 13 principles, are possibly the most problematic element. And the reason I say ironic is because today we all accept them as being you know, absolutely true for all. They're printed in every Siddha. It was specifically in those areas that there was debate that there was machlokes. Can you explain a bit about that? Because how could people disagree with the ideas? They seem pretty fundamental. God is one. The Torah was given at Sinai. I mean, there's not much room for argument, surely. So the, the argument is more on a philosophical level. Firstly, who says there are 13 principles? Now, all, so to speak, orthodox Jews agree to the underlying principles of these 13 as being dogma, as, as axiomatic. And there are three underlying principles, as the Sefei Koran, Rubrius of Alba, writes. The first is Metzius Hashem, that God exists. Ter Hashemayim, Ter was given as a divine document. And Schar Vo'enesh, reward and punishment. In fact, if you look at the 13 principles, the first five are Metzius Hashem, the next four are Ter Hashemayim, and the last four are Schar Vo'enesh. That's the order in which they follow. So what's the difference, whether it's fundamental or an agreed principle? Seems like semantics. If a person disagrees about a fundamental, they are guilty of heresy, of apicorosis. But if it's an important idea and not an ikar, not a fundamental, then they could be wrong. 
but you can drink their wine, you can count them in a minion, you can give their child a bris on Shabbos. And as a practical example, the Rivard writes, with regard to the principle that God is non-corporeal, that God is non-physical, doesn't have, you know, an, a hand or an eye, even though Psukim in the Torah mention this. And the, the Rambam says this is one of the 13 principles. The Rivard says, I know people who believe that God is corporeal. And, and he, he says, you know, why does he call these people apostates? There are people better and worthier than the Rambam who've held this view for which they've found sources in Tanakh. Now, there's a second difference in, you know, whether it's a, a fundamental or an agreed principle because of what they oblige me to believe. For instance, the fourth principle talks about God being Rishon and Achron, first and last. How does that differ from what it says in the second principle that God was, is, and will be? Now, the Rambam puts these in two different fundamentals of faith, and these are the dividing line between heresy and faith. So you can't play around, you can't be vague. Now, this is where I go back to what I mentioned earlier. Today, nobody knows anything about philosophy. So you just say the 13 after davening and you're fine. And, you know, I assume the Rambam's turning in his grave. There is how the Rambam defines what happens after you die. What does that mean? So according to the Rambam, ultimately, it actually means the soul. We're not going to go into detail, but that is ultimately. There will be a physical resurrection as a double, whatever. But will you tell us the difference between the two you mentioned before? That did sound very similar. That in itself will take a, a share. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll maybe get back to it, but not for the moment. But just right. demonstrate. I mean, there, there's more than that. Even that, that he will do, he does, levadoi. What does levadoi mean? All of these things in the first five require some sort of philosophical analysis right. to come to a conclusion. Although you're going to make everyone remain as heretics till you explain it. Um, no, it hopefully <laughs> gives them the impetus because there are plenty of places that you can nowadays find at least a uh, first line of defense to explain what they mean. Right. The Rambam also takes a strong stand against demons, witchcraft and their existence and interestingly against rabbis accepting payment for their positions. And eventually this is all going to cause an issue which he knew. You know, the Rambam writes in one of his letters, I'll quote part of it, I knew at the time that I composed it that it would undoubtedly fall into the hands of a jealous person and or into the hands of an ignoramus, into the hands of a confused type, into the hands of a reactionary man of piety who will attack the explanations of the fundamentals of faith included in it. But the Rambam understood that this is the core of our belief system. So he wrote it. And the, the first shot is sounded by Ravmeir Abulafia in Spain, the author of the Adrama. He's outraged by the Rambam's apparent disbelief in physical resurrection. And he writes a series of letters to the French Jews in Provence. And this snowballs, and the Rambam now feels he should defend himself. And in 1191, he writes, Mamar al specifically addressing this issue. Generally, he didn't get involved in answering critics. And he was even reluctant to compose this. But here it was... 
simply a case of them misunderstanding him. You know, he was very mild and he viewed criticism with philosophic detachment. He writes to his Talmud, his favorite Talmud, one believes, Yosef ibn Aknin, to whom he wrote the Maranavuchim, and told him to have restraint in the face of criticism. He writes a letter to Pinchas ben Meshulam of Alexandria and says that even if I heard somebody elevating himself at the expense of my degradation, I wouldn't be angry. But the Ashkenazim in particular, the Balitosvus, are unhappy with what he has written philosophically. However, since the work itself, the Mishnah Torah, is a halachic one, it's not encouraging the study of philosophy, and there's only this sort of one sefer that has now been made available. And, as we mentioned last week, the Rivad had already written a strong critique. So the Rambam is not unopposed. It's interesting because the, the Rivad, as well as being a critic, was also supportive of certain pieces of the Mishnah Torah. You know, he writes about the Rambam. His formulation is sweeter than the Tosefta. Or, you know, the Rambam's theory is just a theory, but I like it. Or, you know, his explanation here is better than the one of the Rif. There was a work which had gone through systematically the Mishnah Torah. And then the Rivad dies in 1198, the Rambam in 1204. There was no scandal which ended his life. His scholarly reputation is undamaged. His, his followers are people of note. So between it all, it doused the flames of controversy. There was, however, continued unease in Ashkenazi circles, halachically, not philosophically, just from the idea of a singular psak in halacha was foreign to them. We don't necessarily realize this, but within the Bale Teisvus camp, there were strong differences between the French Bale Teisvus and the German Bale Teisvus. So, as far as they were concerned, yes, the, the Rambam's a genius and a Talmud Chochem, but he is one of the views in a sea of opinions in Halacha. In fact, he is only quoted three times in all of Tosfos. Even the Rif is only quoted around 60 times. The Ashkenazim had their own methods, their own Gedolim. They didn't need to come on to anybody else when it came to Talmud. Surprising how prominent he is today in, in every circle. Yeah, so that happens over the next century. But this controversy during his lifetime was a prelude to the next two. The second one happens because the Ibn Tibbon family, mentioned last week in Marseille, finished translating the Rambam's Guide to the Perplexed in 1204. And it reaches the Jews in Christian Europe, which was a cultural and social climate very different from the one in which it had been written in an Arab-Islamic Egypt. And his philosophical views are now available to people who previously are unexposed to philosophy. Can I just interrupt you with a bit of a broader question, I suppose? What, what is the issue with philosophy? What do we find in Jewish philosophy so difficult to accept, so controversial? Okay. So... Judaism recognizes two strands of Torah. There's faith and there's knowledge, and they differ. Faith requires acceptance of truth without conclusive proof. It's a closed system. It does not have 
intellectual inquiry. You begin with the conclusion as a fact. The giving of Torah at Mount Sinai, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, they're in that category. You know, with all the sort of outreach organizations giving classes in this, and, and I include myself in this, proofs of God are not actually proofs per se. They are beyond reasonable doubt arguments. And then the rest is faith. It's not blind Christian faith, but it's faith. But other areas of Judaism have an intellectual reasoning to them, understanding Hashem. I have a quote here from the Rambam, which I was going to quote later, but we may as well bring it in now. And when you hear this quote from the Rambam, you will never be the same because you won't view the Rambam in the same way. The Rambam writes as follows. I'm holding on tight. Yeah. Whoever thinks that they will serve God without having proper knowledge of God, but with a sort of an image in their mind as to what constitutes HaKadosh Baruch Hu, or using beliefs and opinions that they have heard from others, and presumably we mean even scholars, not only is this person not serving Hashem, they are serving something that does not exist. Which means that anybody who does not understand the philosophical elements of Judaism, they don't have to be a philosopher themselves, but if it hasn't been taught to them properly, they are wrong. They need principles. So you now understand why I'm saying wow. that this is not quite where we had placed it initially. And now everyone agrees, both sides of the argument agree, that my intellect plays a role. It has to, in terms of halacha, my personal intellect, based on svara, based on my understanding, has to create an outcome of any question of halacha which is new to the generation. I don't know, um, IVF treatment, uh, instantaneous financial transactions in, in different countries, microwaves. All these require a 20th century approach. I can build on the principles, but I have to come up with my logic, my reasoning. So intellect has to be used in Torah, and faith has to exist beyond the intellect. But where do you draw the line? Exactly. And it, it can't just be speculation. Now, history shows there's more than one correct approach. But at that time, when the system of Jewish philosophy was in its infancy, each corner was arguing its case vehemently, and they clashed. That's one part. Then, historically, separately within the Machlekes, you had a question of whether Aristotelian thought fits with Judaism. It didn't seem to. And Aristotle reigned supreme in Muslim countries, not in Christian ones, not, not yet. We'll come back to the Christians. Aristotle says the world is eternal, which the Rambam quotes him as saying in, in part two of the Merenvuchim, whereas, as far as the Torah is concerned, the world was created from nothing ex nihilo. Are those two positions contradictory? It would appear so. But what do we actually mean when we say God created? Nothing changes within God, and therefore, is it possible to square that circle. 
Now, clearly, and this needs reiterating, on the issues of Sinai and miracles and the Exodus, the Rumbum and Aristotle parted ways. Aristotle doesn't believe in divine revelation, in absolute truth. The Rumbum absolutely clearly does. But in other areas, you know, in many ways, Kabbalah, which actually means to accept, and many of the proponents of Kabbalah were the opposition to philosophy, to what nowadays might be called Machshava. And, of course, it doesn't help that there are many people who misinterpret it, who misinterpret both sides, which leads to the extreme on both sides, making things uh, just even worse. Who are these two sides? So in this particular case, in this argument, we need to move to the really to the 1230s to see when things came to a head. The anti-philosophy wing was headed by Reb Shlomo Minhahar from Montpellier and his pupil Rabbeinu Yoyna, the person who authored Shari Tshuva, and the Bali Tosfos in, in Ashkenaz, whereas the other group was headed by the Reduk and supported by many of the others in Provence, obviously Ibn Tibbon family being one of them. And both of the groups felt that the other side just misunderstood and misrepresented how Torah should be learnt, how it should be acquired. And it resulted in communities at war with each other. And internally, and in, in small communities, this is a disaster. People being excommunicated, being excluded from the community, scurrilous letters, attacks. Each side looks at the other as literally encouraging defection from the core of Torah. There's a there's a safer Milchamas Hashem, which talks about some of the violence that took place. And we would find it shocking to, you know, go into the details. You know, even something as simple, so to speak, as the fact that the, the Rumbum was admired by non-Jews. So for some, this was proof of the fact that his opinions are wrong. You know, the non-Jews admire it. For others, it was proof that, so to speak, the light was so strong that even the non-Jews couldn't deny it. Now, in terms of the actual um, historical arguments on the ground, in 1232, the Spanish Rabonim and the leaders of the non-philosophy wing persuade the rabbis in northern France to issue a complete ban on the study of philosophy, particularly the Rambam's Mirnavuchim and his first section of the Mishnah Torah, which we mentioned earlier, has these philosophical concepts in. The Ashkenazim had no acquaintance with philosophy. They never felt the need for synthesis with it. And so they pronounce a cherem on the Rambam's writings. And then you have two other developments. The Ramban, Nachmanides, who was on the side of the Kabbalists, as you know, clearly you see from his commentary. He saw it, though, as his duty to bring peace. So he writes a letter to the French Rabbonim. Long letter. We have it in the Kisvei Ramban. And now he had actually studied under the Bali Tosfos in northern France, although he was originally from Spain, because the Bali Tosfos were the, the masters of Gomorrah, not necessarily of Halacha, but definitely of Gomorrah. And his opening to letters, it's literally 15 lines of apology to them. I'll quote a little bit, you know, Rak onuchi hayoyim kakoton, I am a, a child, Ashashoel mipi melamed, who is making this request of the teacher. Rabbi Senu hatsarfatim, the, our rabbis, the, the French rabbis, talmidechem onu, we are your students, umimechem onu shaisim, we drink from your water. 
But he then goes on the attack. And he says, you know, did he write the Rambam right for your sake? You're not troubled by philosophy. And that's not true in Spain and in Provence. For us, works of philosophy are part and parcel of what we study. So we need to make sure that the philosophy is kosher rather than just banning it. And the Rambam saw himself compelled, this is how the Rambam puts it, to write a work which would offer refuge from the Greek philosophers. Have you ever been misled by their proofs? And he says, you know, um, going back, quoting again, this holy community, Kol Eret Sarfas Rabonim Vasorim, all of you rabbis in France, Kulom Hiskimu Lenados Ulahachrim, you've all agreed to put into Cherem anybody who reads Murnavuchim Vesefa Hamada. Why did you not give the true respect deserving to the Rambam? You have spoken incorrectly about a servant of God. And he says, I need to rebuke you. And this is literally after 15 lines of saying, I'm not worthy of being as great as you, but I can't stand on the sidelines about the faith of the Rambam, his humility, his generosity, his tremendous deeds. And he says, you know, the, the people in Lunel have already seen this Sefer, and they didn't uh, ask us to place it aside. And he talks about the Rivad, who who has responded to some of his writings, but the Rivad never said that this is kfira, that this is heresy, and he then goes on to say that extremism would bring an irreparable split. It is far better to educate gradually a misled society and then bring it back by sort of partial prohibitions. And he then concludes that, you know, the region most afflicted is Provence. Spain, he says, is not as badly off. How was his letter received? It did not bring the Mahlokas to an end. It did have some effect. It did not stop it in its tracks. But then what happens is a more terrible development, which is often the true cost of a dispute. The 13th century saw an upsurge in Christian missionizing against the Jews and against others, partly because of the failure of the Crusades, particularly after the defeat of Louis IX. And there was more sort of open criticism of the Crusades. So the church needed an outlet. In addition, there were threats within Christianity about theology, which forced the Christian establishment into defending its faith and attacking others. And the church was very anti-Aristotelian at the time. They banned his works. This is before Thomas Aquinas. And some of the more extreme Jewish anti-philosophers went to the Christian Dominicans who were at the epicenter of the ban against Aristotle, and they said, these writings of the Rambam are the enemy of Judaism and Christianity, so help us get rid of them. And the Dominicans obliged. They were overjoyed. They burnt the writings of the Rambam in public, creating a shockwave. It is said that it was burnt both in Montpellier and in Paris. I seem to remember reading that there were there were eyewitnesses, there were people there that had taken note of it. So you might be referring to the alleged account of Rabbi Hillel of Verona, which is 
wrong in so many areas that I won't quote it. But what we do know is that Rabbeinu Yoyna was so shocked by what Jews had caused and that the Rambam Sforim were burnt that he renounced all efforts to have the Rambam Sforim and a band and his efforts as well as the public desecration of Sforim by the church sobered people up and this put an end to the controversies of the 1230s now the son of the Rambam who had taken over his father's position as chief rabbi of Egypt, heard of the controversy and of the bans on his father's sforim, and he advised not to retaliate. He wrote that, you know, a fire has consumed the works, but just like Elio ascended to heaven and the fire didn't harm him, so too it's true of my father's works. There was, however, one last act to this tragedy. Ten years later, in 1242, 24 wagon loads of Gomorrah were burnt in public in Paris by the church and the king, which many Jews obviously saw as a direct retribution for what the Jews had inflicted upon other Jews, and that, you know, compounded the catastrophe. Interestingly, the Maram of Rottenberg, who was an eyewitness to that, to the burning of the Talmud, composed a eulogy for it, which we recite on Tisha B'Av, and he used some of the language that the son of the Rambam used. Uh, fire has consumed the works, he created a link. So this did unfortunately end, but it ended because of catastrophe. And we will leave the last part of the uh, Maimonidean controversy, as it's known, uh, until next week, which is the last of our series, where we will also revisit the four ghettos. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. That was a fascinating, quite tragic episode. If I may ask, where does that leave us today in terms of these two schools of thought regarding how you originally said almost a leap of faith that we don't go intellectually down and on so, the other side, you right. know, to, to look into things and to... In walk. many ways, it was never resolved. And in many ways, both are accepted. But it needs to be understood that there has to be an element of using my intellect and of the faith element in acquiring proper Judaism. Okay, thank you. So we'll see you next week for the final episode in this series. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs>